Go ahead and um, grab your Bibles, and you can open up with me to Hebrews 7. Hebrews chapter 7 is our text tonight. We're going to read the whole chapter. Hebrews 7, we'll pick it up in verse 1. These are the words of God. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed are the sons of Levi who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham." But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In, the case, in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in, the, in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the, when the priesthood is changed a necessity of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, 
first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Amen. (laughs) Let's pray. Our Father and God, we are humbled this evening to, uh, to gather um, and we are humbled not because we, we conjured up humility, but because your spirit wrought it within us. We know this is the case, lest we trust in ourselves, because we each sit under the authority of the word of God. This is truly a humbling thing, and so we ask now that you would grant to us understanding and embolden us to serve Jesus, our priest and king. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Amen. So this is the 10th sermon in our Hebrews series, and usually we've taken smaller chunks at a time. Uh, tonight, however, I wanted to take all of chapter 7, not because there's some sort of rule out there on how to preach it, like you have to do this, uh, but because the train of thought of the whole chapter really does go together. The entire chapter lays out this argument. Why is Jesus a priest after the order of Melchizedek? And how is he a priest? And before we walk through the passage, I just want to kind of set the stage for where I intend to go with it. When reading Hebrews, and I have been urging us to remember this several times over, we have to keep in mind to whom the letter was written. This is of great import because um, strenuous exegesis, because of the strenuous exegesis here in the text and in the next few chapters that are coming, is basically going to connect with the circumstances surrounding the recipients. And then, obviously, this will give us a grasp on how we ought to apply the text to our current situation here at Cross and Crown Church. Now, the letter was probably written by Paul, or at least written by someone who knew Paul really well. Uh, It also could have been a collaborative effort on authorship, too. Um, And the letter was given to a bunch of fellowships whose constituents uh, were made up of primarily Jewish Christians. That's who received the letter. Now, these Christians had a Jewish heritage that centered on the temple, and chief among their concerns was the sacrificial system. So their Jewish way of believing and doing life and so on was built on the tribes of Israel and their subsequent roles, uh, the the entire Mosaic economy and so on, all of those things. So they had a robust way of life. Which meant that since Jesus came now, and since they came to faith by God's grace, they had to deal with some of this theology in practice. They had to maybe create categories they hadn't had before. So, you know, what comes of the temple now that Jesus is here? What do we do with this ginormous building thing? Uh, What comes of the law of Moses now that Jesus is here? I mean, we know he said he didn't come to abolish the law. So how does that work? What about the high priest, and what about the sacrificial system? So all of these things were still a very real present issue in reality for them. Thus, these types of questions were often the subject of much consternation and dissension. One only needs to read Galatians to find Paul's hostility towards using the law in a wrong way. Because of these concerns and the correlating temptation to want to resort back to those familiar theological concepts, there needed to be an explanation of it all. There needed to be an explanation. Jesus is here. What about all this other stuff? What do we do with it? Well, Hebrews is the explanation. 
Taken as a whole, Hebrews explains the Old Testament in light of Jesus. So Hebrews is a monumental tome that is meant to correct the wayward doctrines that floated around the Jewish community. So it's a very good and proper commentary on the Old Testament. That's really what it is. You have a built-in commentary in your Bible. It's called the New Testament. Central to this correction is understanding the depths of Christ's person, understanding that He is the prophet, He is the priest, and He is the king. And that all of that is wrapped in one person. In other words, now that Jesus is here, the temple system and all of her sacrifices are now abolished. This particular aspect of the Mosaic law is abolished. There is no more need for the temple, for the Levitical priesthood. There's no need for one particular spot of land and real estate in the Middle East. Jesus has done away with all of that because all of that was a preparation for his coming. So uh, think of it as the scaffolding for the edifice of the new covenant. Once the new covenant was here, done away with, you don't need the scaffolding, it's done. So think of it in those terms. So this section of Hebrews 7 is really setting the stage for the next couple of chapters, which will be basically a larger explanation of the new covenant or the renewed covenant, as we should think of it, and its implications in history as we as God's people move forward doing God's business. So let's go ahead and walk through our text, and you can follow along in your Bible if you'd like, um, and we'll kind of just draw out some implications. Now, we are told at the end of chapter 6 that we have a hope, and this hope is an anchor for the soul, and this hope is both sure and steadfast. Christ is our anchor. He enters within the veil, the veil of heaven, and He is there having become a high priest forever. But Christ's high priest status isn't there because he was of the Levitical tribe. No, he's there as high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So chapter 7 is an explanation of this idea that he introduced in the end of chapter 6. So let's look at chapter 7. We are told in verse 1 about who this Melchizedek guy is. And you can find, um, you can learn about him in Genesis 14 as a very brief section of scripture. He is king of Salem, which was an early name for Jerusalem. And since Jerusalem is connected to the Hebrew word shalom, he is king of peace. That's the idea. He's a king of peace. We are also told that he is a priest of the Most High God. His name, Melchizedek, uh, is a combination of two words. Melech in Hebrew, which means king, and Zedek, which means righteousness. Or we should probably think of it in terms of justice. Melchizedek, he's a priest. And he's a king. And he's, he is so in accordance with things like justice and peace and righteousness. So we're also told in verse 1 here that Abraham, he was a man of war. Usually we don't think of Abraham in those terms, but he was a man of war. He's a man's man, that kind of guy. He was a man of war. He defeated the kings. And after returning from that conquest, if you remember, they, they kidnapped his nephew Lot. And kidnapping is a sin and it's a crime against God's law. So Abraham went and he enacted justice by destroying them all. It's a great story. So after returning from that, Abraham met up with Melchizedek, and Abraham received a blessing from Melchizedek. So in response, in verse 2, it says that Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils of war to Melchizedek. So that's an early picture of the tithe. Um, And there are various uh, debates on the tithe. We're not going to talk about that tonight, per se, but... 
Um, Gary North makes a big argument with regard to this section of Scripture of the tithe, the tenth, um, applying still in the New Covenant, basically because it even predates Moses. So a lot of people think tithe is just Mosaic economy. It was used then, but even predates it. But that's a different issue. So don't miss, no, don't miss the argument already, because it basically sets up for the rest of the chapter. Abraham gave a tenth to the king-priest Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. So keep that in, your, in the back of your mind here. Verse 3 tells us that Melchizedek, according to Genesis 14, has no indication of having parents, no genealogical record to appeal to. He has no birth or death story. They couldn't find the obituary anywhere, right? Um, But since he was a king and a priest of the Most High God, he was made like the Son of God. And thus, Melchizedek was a priest forever. Don't miss that. The priestly order of Melchizedek is not, and I repeat, is not dependent upon ancestry, genealogy, or biology, nor is it dependent upon history as confined by time. It transcends all of that. Now, the order of Aaron and the order of the Levites was dependent upon all of that. Melchizedek, like Abraham, was a righteous man in the land of pagans. Now, think about this. Melchizedek was a Canaanite. I, I always do this to trip up dispensationalists because it is low-hanging fruit. <laughs> we'll talk about that more in a little bit. But uh, was Abraham a Jew? He's the father of the Jewish nation, right? Was he, even, was he a Jew? Well, now we have to ask the question, what does it mean to be a Jew? Now we're talking covenant, not blood. Abraham was a pagan. So Melchizedek, interestingly enough, is a Canaanite. That throws an entire wrench in, into dispensationalism, by the way. Um, and his priesthood, his priesthood is not like the Levitical priesthood. How so? Well, verse 4 tells us. Verse 4 tells us the explanation about this man to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave 10% of his victory spoils. The comparison begins in verse 5. The sons of Levi, they were the high priests in the Mosaic economy. They received tithes from the Israelites as a way to make their living. And interestingly enough, the sons of Levi are the sons of Abraham. Because they came from Abraham, they have a bloodline. They have a genealogy that's uniquely tied to their priesthood. So don't don't miss it. I know there's a lot here in this text. Don't miss the argument. But Melchizedek is different. Verse 6 explains why. Melchizedek, whose genealogy is not traced from the Levites or Abraham, he received a tenth from Abraham, and he gave the blessing to Abraham because God had made a covenant with Abraham. Somehow Melchizedek knew that. I don't know when they first met, you know, Abraham led with that. Hey, I'm Abraham, and I, I'm in covenant with God. And clearly Melchizedek is a Christian. He believed on Jesus, and... Clearly, there's some, some sort of uh, friendship there. I don't know. Maybe they had coffee or something. I don't know. So without any dispute, this much is clear. The lesser is blessed by the greater. That's verse 7. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. So follow the argument. We're going to keep speeding through this. Verse 8 tells us that Melchizedek received tithes like the Levites received tithes. But the difference is he lives on forever, unlike the Levites. Verses 9 and 10 bring, us the, bring the point home. 
Levi was still in the loins of Abraham, and so Abraham, as this covenantal representative of Levi and the sons of Levi, he paid their, tith- paid their tithes on their behalf to the greater. So th- th- <laughs> it's such an odd when you read this several times over. I read it several times over this week, and it's like, man, there's just so much here. Levi, the argument is Levi, who came way later, paid tithes to Melchizedek as well. That's the issue. So that's the point. The order of Melchizedek is greater. It's way better than the order of Levi. So the question of perfection then, or completeness, comes up in verse 11. If men could be complete or perfected through the work of the Levitical priesthood, that's that's how they received the law of Moses and the corresponding sacrificial system. Why then would there need to be another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, one who didn't come from Aaron? Why would that even need to be the case? Well, the answer is simple. Verse 12 tells us the answer. When a priesthood changes, so does the law. Now, and by law, we are talking about the ceremonial law as it's tied to the temple. So anyone who interprets this and anyone who interprets this passage as an entire talking about the entirety of the law of God and the accompanying civil penalties being abrogated knows nothing of biblical interpretation. He's not this is so clear here. And we'll come back to that. If the priesthood changes, there is a change in how the ceremonies are done as well. Jesus from the tribe of Judah, that's verse 14, is clearly not someone who officiated at the altar as high priest, verse 13, and that's because he's not of Levi. So when you think about, why didn't Jesus go, if he's high priest, why didn't he go into the temple and make the sacrifice? Well, there's a reason for that. The sacrifice was going to be outside the camp. Um, So how in the world, then, how can Jesus be a high priest? Well, he's of a different order. Jesus came in the likeness of Melchizedek, verse 15, And his priesthood is rooted um, not in the ceremonial laws of of Moses and Levi, which required Levitical ancestry, but instead Jesus' priesthood is rooted in the fact that he has an indestructible life. Verse 16, you should underline that. Jesus has an indestructible life. Kids, Jesus isn't dead. We celebrate the cross of Christ. We bask in it and what it is. But Jesus today is not dead. He is alive and well, and he's seated on his throne. Now, there's another element to all of this. Jesus' priesthood is guaranteed, it's guaranteed by something other than genealogy and bloodline. It's guaranteed by God's oath, verse 17. Now, we here at Cross and Crown love Psalm 110. <laughs> we like, well, we like all of them, but we really like Psalm 110. And this is now the fourth time that Psalm 110 has been quoted in Hebrews. And he brings, it, he brings the text back to the forefront to prove his defense. He's defending his thesis. Jesus is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's not Genesis 14. That's Psalm 110. So that's what Psalm 110 promises. And this wasn't just a made-up thing last minute. It was a promise from God in a passage about Jesus being king and it was, it was a promise that was ratified by an oath. So when we already talked about that a few weeks ago. When God makes an oath, when he seals his covenant, it's done. It's good as gold. It's, it's there. 
So this supersedes everything. The former commandment about the ceremonial law was set aside because it was weak. Verse 18. It didn't make anyone complete before God. And now we have a better hope. Verse 19. Which means that Jesus... Know this. The Levites did not become priests by an oath. When they became priests, they were born into it. There was no oath attached to it. That's verses 20 and 21. But Jesus did become a priest by an oath from God. So what that means that Jesus is the surety, is the guarantor of a better covenant, verse 22. Now the Levites, they were numerous. Uh, uh, I should... Uh, They were numerous because they died off and and others had to take their place. Verse 23, but Jesus, he's alive and well. He continues forever. Um, Verse 24. Interestingly enough, for those of you who like history, I looked this up this week. Josephus, he counts from Aaron to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. He counts 83 priests, 83 high priests from Aaron to the destruction of the temple. So there is clearly a line of dead people, basically. But Jesus is alive. His, his priesthood continues forever. Because of the perpetuity of, of Christ's priesthood, he can, he can save us. He can save forever those who draw near because he's always living to make intercession. Verse 25. So his intercession or his intervening does not stop by death. He cannot die now. I'm going to read 26, 27, and 28. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. The exciting thing of Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek is because we can actually be complete in Christ. He is holy. He is innocent. He's undefiled. The text says he's separated from sinners. He's exalted above the heavens, unlike the priests of Levi. He doesn't have to go and make daily sacrifices. Jesus doesn't have to atone for his own sins because he has none. His sacrifice was a once-for-all thing. The old covenant law appointed weak men, but here is Jesus, who is a strong man, appointed by God through an oath. He is the Son, He is perfect, and thus He can make us perfect. So, I'm going to summarize all of this. Why is Christ's priesthood, after the order of Melchizedek, why is it better? Number one, He's a priest without limitation. Verses 11 to 14, He's a priest without limitation. The secession of priests was limited in Aaron. Perfection couldn't be provided. The Mosaic economy, as it pertained to the land, to the temple, to seed, all of that came to an end. Two, Jesus is alive. Verses 15 to 19. Three, it's based on an oath. Verses 20 to 22. Four, it's not interrupted by death. Verses 23 to 24. Fifth, I'll say them again in a minute. Christ possesses unique qualifications. So number one, he's a priest without limitation. Number two, Jesus is alive. Number three, it's based on an oath. Number four, it's not interrupted by death. 
And number five, Christ possesses unique qualifications. So absolute sinlessness means finality of atonement. So I'll say it again. Absolute sinlessness means finality of atonement. You do not have to go the pagan route of re-crucifying Christ every Sunday in Mass. It's done. So that's a summary of our text. Let's figure out how in the world we should apply it (laughs) in a way that is consistent with how the first readers of this letter would have applied it. One of the concerns in this passage is the issue of perfection. This is brought up twice in verses 11 and 19. What's not being compared here is something bad with something good. It's something good compared with something better. The good wasn't able to bring men to completion. Many people look at the Old Testament and they just despise it. That's why we have a bunch of antinomians running around. They despise it. They think, well, God clearly had this great system and then it just failed completely as if he needed to figure something else out. So know that the way the New Testament treats the Old Testament is it's a good thing. Jesus is better. So the good of the old covenant, uh, the good of the old covenant economy was just that. It was good. But it could not do what Jesus can do. It wasn't designed to do what Jesus can do. It was the pointer to what Jesus can do. In order to bring men to completion, atonement has to be a final thing. And finality can only be achieved by absolute sinfulness. If men are going to have their sins forgiven, they need to have them forgiven completely. So this is why it matters that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. If you were a priest after the order of Levi, which as a member of Judah, he couldn't have been anyway, then his priesthood would have not been legitimate and he could not save you. He could not be a priest and thus he could not be a king. The reason we need a better covenant and a better priest to give us this covenant is because we are on our way to glory. Jesus is bringing many sons to glory, and in order to do that, he had to make men complete. You and I need completion. We need to be made perfect. We need to attain glory. But that doesn't happen on our own. When we say that Jesus is the guarantor, the guarantee of a better covenant, we are saying this. Jesus has borne on himself the full legal obligations of his people. No Levite could do this. Christ as a surety means that Christ has judicially bought us. So we are covenantally his. And as his covenant people, he represented the death of his people on the cross. Right? Jesus didn't die so you could live. Jesus died so that you would die because you need to die. Now, the adoption papers then are they're signed. The judge has written the verdict. You are his. We are Christ's people. Now, Calvin, interestingly enough, he tells us two two reasons why the Levitical priesthood couldn't complete anything. One, the Levitical priest had to make a sacrifice for his own sins. How, How could he then in turn appease God for his brothers and sisters? Right? So the, he's not perfect. The... The priest, the priest ain't perfect, ain't nobody perfect, right? Um, that's kind of how that works. Two, Calvin points out, sacrifices were repeated because cleansing needed to be repeated, but not so with Jesus. Now, whenever we approach a text like this, 
we have to connect it to that original audience in order to grasp what we're supposed to do with it. What am I supposed to do with this text? Now, I mentioned before that this letter was written to Jewish Christians. They were covenantally tied to Christ, but they were in danger of falling away. The temple was still standing in Jerusalem when they had received this letter. The temple was still standing in Jerusalem. The priests were still ministering inside said temple. And there was still hostility from the Jews towards those who embraced Christ. So how, you know, how can you claim Jesus and throw away all your heritage? How can you do that? How, it was entirely blasphemous to believe already that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now you want me to believe that he's a priest and a king? He can't be priest. Not from, not from Levi. He's from Judah. So in a way, Hebrews is an apologetical manifesto that holds up the supremacy of Jesus Christ over against apostate Judaism. Know that. It's an apologetical manifesto that holds up the supremacy of Jesus Christ over apostate Judaism. The teaching of Hebrews as a whole is very, very simple. We are not dependent upon an impotent system to save us. We are not dependent on an impotent system to save us. You see where I'm going with this? To the statists in the crowd? None here, I know. But maybe they're online and they need a good rebuke. We cannot depend on an impotent system to save us. So our goal in discipling the nations is not dependent upon man. It's dependent on Christ, who is the God-man, the king-priest. So all of our religious efforts, and, and uh, Brother Ron, I know you were there, the, the big to-do in uh, D.C., uh, the gun march, whatever you want to call it. I don't remember the name of it. <laughs> Um, was that not an exercise in religious demonstration? It was religiously motivated, wasn't it? So all of our, all of our religious efforts and our philosophical endeavors, all of them apart from Christ, are completely impotent. They are powerless. And so that's what Hebrews wants to argue, which means that we need to have a robust doctrine of Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. Like the early Christians who received this letter, we too have been called to a great calling. We too have been brought into this grand mission, which means that we need to know who it is we are. We need to know who it is we are. Now the Bible teaches that we are priests in Christ, who is in the order of Melchizedek, and because of this, we can then and only then have peace and righteousness, peace and justice. We are covered in Christ, and because of it, we go forth as representatives of this priest who is still to this day alive and well. We don't normally talk like that, but when you're going about your day, you should assume yourself a priest after the order of King Jesus. That's what you should think. So we have to know this about ourselves. Now, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the atonement does more than get someone to heaven. It does more than just get you to heaven, as glorious as that thought is. Remember what the point of the atonement is. It turns covenant breakers into covenant keepers. It turns you into a not able to have a high priest who can save you into I have a high priest who can now save me. It was to make us be able to obey God's law and in turn implement the law of God in our lives, in our families, in our churches, and ultimately in society. So we are now justice people. That's what we are. 
You want all these SJWs marching around with their Kool-Aid. I don't, that's not a, a cult reference, though I guess that fits too. Uh, they're marching around with their religious motivation. They want what? They want justice. And they all want it on their humanistic terms. They don't know where to get it, so they just assume, well, let's take the guns. That makes sense. Different issue. <laughs> We're justice people. For the Christian, obedient, listen, for the Christian, obedience to God's law is done not from a deficit, but from a surplus. Don't miss this. Your obedience to the law word of God is done not from a deficit, but from a surplus. The filling of the Holy Spirit gives you ample resources to honor God by living righteous lives. Listen. <clears throat> With Jesus as both priest and king, we can expect God's covenant to be enforced. Jesus is king, and he is priest, and he intends to enforce his covenant. He's not just sitting there figuring out, well, maybe these covenantal things will come to fruition. Maybe my people will obey. Maybe they'll repent of their apathy. You know what, you know what our prayer should be? God, break us till we obey. Break us. Do whatever you need to do to rid us from our apathy, to rid us from our toleration of wickedness. And so because God expects His covenant to be enforced, and because Jesus is King, and He is priest, and He's going to do it, we can also expect God to, to use us to be a part of that enforcement. But most, most churches teach the opposite of this. Now, unfortunately, may I speak candidly. I recently listened to a sermon from a pastor in the area on the issue of God's law and society. Speaking out of woeful ignorance for what Christian Reconstructionists believe, he said that there are some who believe that the church's job is to implement Old Testament law and society. Condescendingly, that was said. Um, this, that, of course, is only partially true. Being belligerent towards theonomists, he attempted to paint basically this picture that doesn't even really align with what traditional Reconstructionist thought is at all. And clearly he would rather have humanistic law rule over us instead of biblical law. Also clear is that he would rather have this dualistic gospel that remains impotent in history, the same type of antinomianism that passes in our seminaries and our churches. So let's just call it for what it is. This type of preaching is why we are in the mess we're in now, and it's this type of preaching that keeps men and women babes in Christ because they are unable to understand the atonement and all of its facets. It's a strategic way to basically keep the church stupid. He, went, he then went on to talk about the grace of God and how the Holy Spirit changes our hearts and renews our minds and makes us new creations. All of that is good and true and right. And in, in how we are no longer under law, but grace. Which is true if you understand it and nuance it the right way. How we're supposed to walk in righteousness. What is How we know what righteousness is is never explained. What is missing, what was missing from this abject mischaracterization was the fact that the better aspect of the, of the new covenant isn't because the older aspects were somehow mistaken and that God had accidentally implemented His oppressive law and it was just not a good idea. Jesus is much nicer. That's not it at all. The coming of, listen, the coming of Christ was not plan B. 
When the Holy Spirit writes the law in our hearts, He does it through regeneration. And this regeneration is the application of the priestly work of Jesus in the order of Melchizedek, which means that the salvation we have is greater than the truncated, dualistic gospels that pervade our churches. It's a fully orbed, all-of-life salvation. It touches everything in life and in culture. Listen, the law of God is meant to be a vehicle for administering the holiness of God on earth as it is in heaven. The law of God is meant to be a vehicle for administering and carrying out the holiness of God on earth as it is in heaven. The Holy Spirit is a theonomist. He loves the law. And he compels us to love the law. You didn't love the law, did you? Well, how could you? Why would you, why would you um, obey Christ out of, when you're dead in your sins? You can't. But then the Holy Spirit takes your heart, renews it, gives you a heart of flesh, takes out the stone, and now you love God's law. This administration in the world comes from regeneration, but it doesn't stop there. Jesus changes your heart, but it's not the only thing He intends to change. Now, you and I, you and I have been brought into this calling by the Spirit of God. So so the question I have is, is what is it that Christ cannot save? Secular universities? Where is it that Christ cannot reach? The Supreme Court? When can Christ's power as high priest ever be vanquished? We have the power of Christ, and as His priests, we can go forth in wisdom and in confidence. And this is our job. We are walking and talking law of God lovers who want others to hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, and have Christ rule their hearts and their entire lives. Amen. So I get it. Yes. It's hard to have hope when things are in shambles. It's hard to think that anything good can happen in this ramshackle culture. Chaos abounds. Our entire political experience is completely disheveled, right? Wasn't it Franklin who said, a republic if you can keep it? We can't keep it. Nope. <laughs> we, and, and on top of all that, we keep killing our children. How can we possibly believe the entirety of God's oath to Jesus? To, answer, to ask the question is to answer it. It's God's oath. He's taken upon himself to accomplish it. And if Jesus, if we will not be obedient... He'll either break us off and we will be obedient and He'll bring us down to our knees so that's all we have left. Or you know what He'll do? He'll leave us and we will float into the sea of irrelevancy and we will accomplish nothing. But we'll look good doing it, won't we? We'll have our nice padded pews or chairs. I guess that's a thing now. (laughs) But we'll look good doing it. Jesus Christ is king and priest, and in his office, we are brought into this covenant in order to keep it. We are saved to the covenant. We get to honor Christ by obeying everything he commands. We get to honor Christ by living regenerate lives in obedience to his law word. We are privileged to be brought into this priestly order of Melchizedek so that in our following of Christ in the world, we can bring this better covenant to bear on earth as it is in heaven. We are not dependent upon an impotent system we are dependent upon a risen savior whose oath and covenant withstands all onslaughts so take heart and be emboldened let's pray heavenly father we are in 
awe of your son's priesthood. We are in awe that he is both king and priest because he has brought a salvation that cannot be displaced. We confess and believe that when your word seals something with an oath, that it is not in need of any further cross-examination. It needs no further redaction or further edits. We ask, Father, your spirit would embolden us by these realities, that we would be encouraged, spurred on towards love and good works for the kingdom of God. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be faithful priests in your covenant. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.